Well, we start a brand new series in the letter of 1 Timothy, spending 10 weeks working our way through this letter. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, have them opened up at 1 Timothy. If you're new to the Bible, 1 Timothy is found in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible. And it's sandwiched in the middle of what we call the T's. You have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. And we're today heading to 1 Timothy, where we'll camp out really for the next 10 weeks. But before delving into the passage today, let me first set up why we're going into the New Testament letters and why they are so important. Over the last 18 months, we looked at a gospel account. And the four gospel accounts are really the telling of the life and ministry of Jesus, including many words directly spoken by Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament builds to Jesus, bursting onto the scene, and the Gospels themselves build to his death, burial, resurrection, and then the ascension into the heavenly realms to sit at the right-hand side of the Heavenly Father. What comes after these Gospel accounts are mainly letters and accounts of how the early church and early Christians established themselves in small growing house churches, and how over several decades, The Lord grew in number those that followed him and therefore grew in number the churches across the region. Now there's some that would say we should only concentrate our teaching on the four gospel accounts or they would say that we should weight those gospel accounts higher in importance than the rest of the New Testament. Some would even go as far as to say that we should take the words of Jesus as primary and then the rest of the New Testament as secondary. Now if you're watching or listening today I want to say that that approach to scripture shows a mishandling of the word of God and ignorance to its truth. Now let me show you why that is the case. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Notice the terms all scripture, meaning all of God's word, and the fact that it was breathed out by God. The words we read in the Bible are God's words, given by God, inspired by God, breathed out by God. Yes, men wrote them, but under a divine command of God. He told them what to write. Now consider John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word or scripture or what 2 Timothy 3 describes as scripture breathed out, words breathed out, was with God and was God. And that takes us to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In these three passages, we see that all of scripture is in fact God and God was there before time even began. Yet the Bible goes even deeper into what the word of God is. Psalm 119 verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, meaning all of these words that are God, that were in existence before all time, are entirely truthful and can be trusted. And how we respond to all of these words is in obedience to Revelation 22 from verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. 
in just a quick, and it was very quick overview of scripture, this is what we can apply to a study that we're going to do for the next 10 weeks in 1 Timothy. The letter of 1 Timothy is the word of God, which means it is God, which means it existed before all time, which means it is complete truth, which means it can be trusted. And all of that means that we should treat it in obedience to Revelation 22 and neither downgrade making it less meaningful than the physical words of Jesus in the Gospels or upgrade it in some form of higher thinking than the Gospels. In other words, we treat 1 Timothy no differently than how we would treat Genesis, the Psalms, the Gospels, even Revelation. To treat 1 Timothy or any other letter in the New Testament differently would deny the whole of Scripture. And friends, that is exactly how the fall came about in Genesis 3, when the words of God were doubted, twisted and not handled correctly. So with that said, we're going to turn our attention to this letter. Today we're going to consider its introduction and its clear warning against false teachers. And there's two things I want to pull out this morning, two things that I want you to see. First, that our character should reflect Christ. And second, that it's time the church gets very serious about wolves in sheep clothing who seek to devour the church. And I want you to see that order, that our character in Christ shapes how we lead the church and therefore how we handle those that defame the word of God. So as you can tell, as we head into the series, quite a different series from our Mark's Gospel series. We're going to get down into the depths of the principles that set up the church, how the church should run and ultimately how we should reflect Christ in our lives as the body of Christ the church of Christ. So we're going to begin in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We read that this letter was written by Paul in roughly AD 60, and Paul has an interesting background. He was born into a Jewish family with his name originally being Saul. And we read in Acts 22, he was also a Roman citizen. And both elements being Jewish and Roman citizen meant that Paul had or Saul had a great start to life. And one that led to a long list of credentials that we read in Philippians chapter 3 and from verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In essence, Paul, or back then Saul, was highly respected and revered amongst the Jewish people. That is until everything changed when he met King Jesus, who transformed his life from persecutor of Christians to gospel evangelist. So great was the change that his name went from Saul to Paul. Clearly I'm tripping up over this name change, but that's how great his change was in his life, that his very name had to be changed from Saul to Paul. And we read in verse one that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, meaning to be an envoy or an ambassador. Essentially, an apostle bears the credentials of the one that sends them. 
Now, when I used to live in Edinburgh, there's a significant shopping street in the city centre called Prince's Street. And I remember quite often you could walk down this street and there were Coca-Cola ambassadors giving out free cans on the street. You knew they were from Coca-Cola because their rucksacks were in the shape of Coca-Cola, they were dressed in red and they were handing out cans of cola to everyone that passed them. There was no doubting who they were or who they represented. They certainly weren't representing Iron Brew. They weren't handing out Iron Brew. They were not dressed in orange and they were not in strong Scottish accents. But they were representing Coca-Cola because they dressed like them, they sounded like them, they gave out what they had by the credentials of the company. So what about Paul? Well, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He carries the credentials of Jesus. He represents Jesus. And what does he give out? He gives out what Jesus gave to him, salvation in the name of Jesus. Yet there's more to it than that. In some senses, all Christians are apostles through the Great Commission. We're to represent Jesus to all nations. But Paul is different. For Paul was not commanded through the Great Commission. He was commanded directly from Jesus. He was commanded by the one who saves. And I want you to note this in verse one, that this is the first time saviour was used in Paul's letters. He was commanded by the one who saves and commanded by Jesus, who is our hope. Now, in all of Paul's letters, he starts with some form of salutation, apostle, servant, prisoner. So why use apostle to the letter that heads to Timothy? Well, we're soon going to find out that Timothy did not need reminding of Paul's position as a leading authority commissioned by Jesus himself. Instead, often these letters would be read out to the entire church and the use of apostle as a salutation was to remind the church that Paul speaks with all authority. For he has been commanded by Jesus to be his ambassador, his envoy and his representative to the people. If that's who the letter is from, who is the letter to? As I said, uh, that as this letter would have been read out to the whole church, you might be thinking that this is to the church. Well, actually, specifically to Timothy, whose name means one who honours God. Timothy is likely in his 20s at this point. He was brought up by his grandmother and mother, who from an early age taught him the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. By the time this letter was written, Timothy had been serving alongside the Apostle Paul for nearly 15 years, and Paul describes him as a true child in the faith, essentially meaning that Paul led him to Christ, and although Timothy's eternal father is the heavenly father who sent Jesus, his earthly spiritual father, his earthly mentor, so to speak, was Paul. But when we take a wider view of scripture, we learn a little bit more about how Paul views Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4.17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Then in Philippians 2.20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Clearly, Timothy meant a lot to Paul, but we also see the character of Timothy is one of great faithfulness and genuine care. In fact, as John MacArthur writes, Timothy is a great example of what it means to live in Christ's likeness. His faith was a saving faith, having publicly declared his allegiance to Jesus. His faith was obedient, honouring God in all of his service. His faith was humble, willing to help wherever he could. 
His faith was sound. He stood on true doctrine and his faith was courageous in that he fought the good fight for the sake of the gospel. So we have the Apostle Paul commissioned by Jesus writing to Timothy, the young man of great faith in Christ likeness. And so Paul rounds up his introduction to this letter in verse two with grace, mercy and peace from Jesus. Now, grace and peace were common in letters, but Paul adds mercy to his introduction, something that he rarely does. Simply way to explain this phrasing is that we have grace in Jesus who was sent as a sacrifice. We have mercy through Jesus who provides salvation through his atoning blood sacrifice. And we find peace by Jesus for it's by his name that the father calls us children of God. When Paul said in grace, mercy and peace, he was essentially saying in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an introduction. In a first few verses, a first few lines, we see gospel transformation and true gospel zeal. I wonder if we were to ask you right now to describe yourself in two sentences, would people hear and see gospel transformation and true gospel zeal? Certainly a challenge worth pondering over, but now let us head into the main bulk of the text today and find out why Paul was writing this letter. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul and Timothy had travelled a significant portion of the land, planting churches, establishing leaderships and encouraging new believers. They were a missionary partnership. They had travelled to Ephesus together and having found trouble in the church, they remained to sort out the issues. In fact, we later read in 1 Timothy that Paul had to remove certain individuals from the church due to their sinful actions. Now, having spent quite a bit of time in the Ephesian church, Paul then seeks to head to Macedonia, but he leaves Timothy behind to remain in the church to continue out the work that he was doing. Now, the wording choice shines a light on how Timothy might have felt about this. Paul states that he urged Timothy to stay. In other words, you could translate it as he begged or he pled, he pleaded for Timothy to stay. Potentially, it gives hint to the fact that Timothy didn't want to stay. Maybe he wanted to continue with Paul to Macedonia or maybe the issues in the church of Ephesus were quite an undertaking. What was Timothy's task? To deal with the false teachers. He was to charge, meaning to command or instruct certain individuals to not teach any different doctrine. It is highly likely that these certain individuals were leaders in the church who took responsibility for the teaching and the preaching. In Acts 20, 30, we read, And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They were not false teachers who travelled around and somehow found themselves in this church. These were leaders within the church itself. They were teaching a different or a false doctrine. The connotations being that they were teaching an opposing doctrine, that they were leading people away from Jesus. And we see in scripture that those who do this should be dealt with seriously. Titus 1.11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. Timothy 
was to command them to stop. Quite bold thing, really. This young man of God commanding likely older men in position of authority to stop leading people astray. More than that, they were to not devote themselves to myths and genealogies. They were not to use fanciful stories that they had made up themselves to look good and knowledgeable. For in this false teaching, there would rise endless speculation, mistrust and questioning, not only of the word of God, but those who served the Lord faithfully. It was the opposite of gospel ministry. In fact, it thwarted the ministry that the church was supposed to be focused upon. What we'll unpick later and in the coming sermons is that these false teachers would twist the word of God. They would change the application. They would even make Jesus lesser than what he truly was. And all of it was for personal gain. This was not about gospel ministry and the kingdom of God. It was about making themselves look good and gaining followers for their sight. And let's not kid ourselves here. This was not a one-time thing. In fact, for centuries, even right up till today's church, such people exist, who are more interested in how they look and in their authority than the ministry of Jesus Christ. As Paul told Timothy, we need to command them to stop. As we read in Titus, they must be silenced. And we're not going to pull any punches today. Those that would live, speak, teach and oppose in doctrine to the word of God must be stopped. But what is our aim in doing so? Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What is the charge or the command? To stop leading people astray with false doctrine and man-made nonsense. What is the aim of such a charge? Love. The English language is quite poor when it comes to the word of love. English language only has one word really for it, yet the Greek language has multiple words for love. Here we're talking about agape love, a selfless, sacrificial love that is personified in Jesus. Why is it loving to command such false teachers to stop, even to go as far as ensuring that they're silenced? Well, two reasons. First, do you remember Revelation 22? Let me read it again. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It is not loving to let someone twist the word of God, teaching opposing doctrine and leading people astray. For if we idly let them do so, they will walk straight into an eternal cursed life, far from God and eternal turmoil. But second, the church leader or pastor is a shepherd following the example of Jesus. The shepherd seeks to protect the sheep, to lovingly guide them to safe pasture, to good food and to drinking water. The shepherd of the church is to protect the people of God from such false twisted doctrine, leading them back to the word of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In love, the shepherd will defend the church from such foe as false teachers and protect them from their evil desires. Sure, the shepherd is likely to be in this some form of scuffle with these false teachers, even potentially he's going to be harmed during battle against such evil. But it's always because of the love that exists for the church. So we love the false teachers seeking for them not to be cursed for eternity. And we love the church enough to protect them from such false teachers. And Paul describes to Timothy how this love comes about. 
First, it comes from a pure heart. We're cleansed by the words of Jesus. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Second, it comes from a good conscience, meaning to be free from offence against God or man. Thirdly, it comes from a sincere faith, one that truly grasps the magnitude of the sacrifice of Jesus and new life found in him. In fact, these three things differentiate the true leader and the teacher of the word of God from the false teacher. Because the false teacher doesn't have a pure heart, doesn't have a good conscience, doesn't have a sincere faith. Their work is going to destroy rather than lovingly building up and protecting. That is how you know the difference between a true leader and a false leader, a true teacher and a false teacher. For if they have a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith, they are a good teacher, pure in their motives with the word of God. But if these three things don't exist, then they're a false teacher. Let's continue into verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Do you see how the false doctrine was possible? They started to walk away from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. It is not that they've taken the word and somehow misinterpreted it. Instead, they have wandered away from Christ likeness. That is the beginning of false teaching. The false teaching, say, from the pulpit is what we obviously talk about as false doctrine. But what we often miss is that false teaching starts with a life that wanders away from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. These individuals have desired to be teachers. They've desired to have the position of authority, but because they've wandered away from these three things, they wanted it for recognition and affirmation more than the humble service of a shepherd that lovingly protects. They hadn't grasped James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Their desires were for themselves and it showed for they had no understanding of the word of God. They so confidently pontificated over the word of God, yet they had no understanding of it. In fact, you would go as far as to say that they were spiritually dead. They may have held leadership positions, but as Jude writes, they were twice dead. They neither had the desire nor the ability to serve the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they had wandered away from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, you must be thinking, poor Timothy, this is certainly mounting up to a significant task to shut these false teachers down. No wonder Paul had to urge him, beg him, plead him to stay and remain to do this task. Let's continue verse eight. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, here's the first strong indication that we get that Paul is talking about the twisting of God's word, even changing it to suit personal agendas. For he switches tact and goes to the positive of God's word. It is good and it is useful because it reflects the will of God. But it's only good when it is applied lawfully or how God has intended it. And Paul really hammers this point home when we head into verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The purpose of the law, or the time of writing the Old Testament, is to show sinners their sin. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The scriptures hold us accountable and show that we have sinned against God. Yet they do more than that. They also point to the need for a saviour. Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The word of God builds and consistently points to Jesus. For now we know that we are sinners and now we know that we need a saviour. We now know that that saviour is Jesus Christ. See how quickly Paul is able to put in context why we need the scriptures and why it's so dangerous to teach them falsely. Because all of God's word builds to Jesus and Jesus builds to salvation. Salvation means freedom from sin, freedom from guilt and becoming a child of God for eternity's sake. We will then become a citizen of heaven. So you can see what Paul is saying here. Twist that message at all at any place and you lose the true gospel. And that is why we've got to take letters in the New Testament so seriously, because all of God's word is truth and it can be trusted. So who is the scriptures for? Why should they be taught? Why should Timothy ensure that false teachers are silenced? Well, it all comes back to the gospel, for sinners need a saviour. And if we're in any doubt, Paul points to examples of sin that show how desperately we need Jesus. As we quickly go through them, notice how they all relate back to the Ten Commandments given in Exodus. The scriptures are for the lawless who have no commitment to any standard, which leads them to become disobedient to the word of God. The scriptures are for the ungodly who have no regard for anything sacred and therefore are led to sin. The scriptures are for the unholy who are indifferent to what is right and to God, which leads them to profane the name of Jesus. The scriptures are for those who strike or kill or disobey their fathers and mothers, showing not, no regard for parental guidance. The scriptures are for the murderers who take the lives of others. The scriptures are for those who practice homosexuality, who have sexual desires contrary to God's standard of sexuality in marriage. The scriptures are for those who enslave, for those who lie and for those who twist the truth. And if you're sitting there all high and mighty thinking, well, I wasn't on that list. Well, Paul covers you too. For scripture is needed for all those who do anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. Do you see that? That we need the word of God in entirety for every sinner so that they would know their sin, that they would be led to their need of a saviour, and that that saviour would be Jesus Christ. That is why 
any ministry for the gospel's sake has to be word-centred because it's the word of God that shows sin, that brings about the need for the saviour, that shows that the saviour is Jesus. Whether it be evangelism, whether it be Sunday services, whether it be house groups, whether it be fellowship, whether it be worship, whether it be prayer, it needs to be centred around the word of God. And who is the word of God? Well, we've learned that today, haven't we? The word of God is Jesus. And when has Jesus been around? Since before the beginning of time. So the word of God is the final authority on all matters. And that is why the word of God needs to be given to sinners so that they would know the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And why is all this so important to grasp? Well, this is what Paul says, for this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, that the word of God has been given so that we might know our sin, that we might be led to our saviour and so that we might know King Jesus transforming our lives and setting us free. This is the task that Paul was given and that he now gives Timothy to ensure that these truths are taught, which for him means an almighty task to shut the mouths of those who would dare teach anything else. Do you see the task in Timothy's hands? Do you see what he's now going to have to do? Not only does he have to silence false teachers, but now he needs to grapple with the word of God and share it boldly and apologetically so that people, that sinners, would come to know the Saviour Jesus Christ. What an incredible start to the letter of 1 Timothy. Now in a recent sermon I was listening to on the book of Revelation, the pastor said, we need to be reminded that these words were written for them, uh, sorry, that these words were written to them, but for us. That these words were written to them, but for us. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, but it's also for us. That means we can take applications. That means we can take principles. That means we can take the word of God, put it on our lives and let it shape our lives as individuals and as the church. So as we close out our first sermon, our first part of this 10 part series, I'm going to give you two ways that we need to apply this passage to our lives. The first is a question and the second is a statement. So here's the question. Is your character one of Christ likeness? Is your character one of Christ likeness? Paul and Timothy are the example given to us of Christ likeness. They reflect Jesus in how they live, in how they interact with others, in how they describe themselves, and even in how they aim to reflect Jesus in a church that has issues. In fact, Paul goes as far as to say this in 1 Corinthians, that we can imitate him as he follows Jesus. Such was his example of Christ-likeness. And we see in the description of Timothy that this young man has been entrusted with an almighty task because he's shown the character of one who follows Jesus. What would people say about you? Right now, consider your speech, your actions, how you live, how you interact with others, how you communicate, how you serve. Would people point to you and say, wow, what an example of Jesus? Let's be honest, I doubt many of us could say that. This week, I sat beside a man who has been described as a great encourager, as a man who loved Jesus, as a man who was convinced by the gospel, as a man who loved others, 
as a man who was so confident in the scripture that he had to just share it with you, especially when he thought you were erring away from it. Yes, he had sin, but just listen to those words. Listen to how people described him. Would people describe you in this way? Would they describe you as a great encourager, as one who loved Jesus, who one is Christ-like in their character? Could you take the words of Galatians 2.20 and say that it was true in your life? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, it doesn't come by trying. It doesn't even come with hoping. It comes by loving Jesus more than anything else. Loving Jesus more than your opinion, your position, your earthly riches, even your family. Your character will be shaped by how much you love Jesus. For the character of Jesus shows us that he was loving enough to the point of giving his life for us. Do you love Jesus to the point where you can be led to give your life for him? Our character should reflect the love that we have for Jesus. Paul and Timothy are our example that it can happen, that it's possible, and it all starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we spent 51 sermons, 18 months going through Mark's gospel, so that we would grasp the whole Bible builds to the gospel and the gospel shapes everything that comes afterwards. The gospel shapes the church, it shapes how we live, it shapes our very lives. So how would people describe you? Are you Christ-like in character? Well, that was question one. And as I said, there was a second and it's a statement. And here's the statement. False teachers, we are coming for you. I said it and I mean it. For too long, as a false teacher, you have been given a platform to pontificate what you do not know. For too long you have twisted the beautiful word of God. For too long you have laid waste to the work of faithful men and women. For too long you have lived in the shadows trying to achieve your agenda by hiding your true motives. And let me say this, the Bible gives me and every believer in Christ the authority to seek your silence. To seek your mouth to be shut and your nonsense to stop. The Bible gives authority to command that no myths, no alternative doctrine, no man-made nonsense will be preached from the pulpit. The Bible gives us authority to say, false teachers, we are coming for you and your days are numbered. Yet our passage also reminds us of these two truths. We do it because we desperately love both you, the false teacher, and the church. We do not wish for your eternity to be cursed. We do not wish for the church to be led from darkness or from light into darkness. We love you enough, false teacher, to say stop or we will stop you. We love you enough to command you to cut out the false doctrine or we will cut it out for you. We love you enough to say that false doctrine, endless controversy, fake living is not welcome in this church. For we know that there is a better way and that way is Jesus and his word. Paul didn't pull any punches. I want to be just 
unbelievably clear today. If you have begun to wander away from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, if you have began to wander into endless discussions, into fake living, into false living, into wrong motives, into false doctrine, into leading people astray, I am being clear today, we are coming for you and your days are numbered. It will not stand in the Church of Christ and we are commanded by the authority of God's word, the thing that has final authority over all things, to do so. I close with this. I know the attacks are coming. I know that false teachers don't go quietly. I know the emails are going to flood in. I know the complaints are going to rise and the fight back has already begun. I know as the shepherd of God here at Lincoln Baptist that I will likely, personally, be under attack. For Satan doesn't want this mission to be told. He doesn't want false teachers to be told that we have suited up with the armour of God and we are coming for you. He doesn't want us to have that strength in Christ. He doesn't want us to protect God's word. He doesn't want us to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and say we will not be shaken. He doesn't want the truth of God's word preached boldly and unapologetically. So I know that he's coming for me. But here is the truth. I love you and the church and Jesus. And that is why I'm willing to say with all authority in the word of God, false teachers, we are coming for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we truly, truly praise you for the gospel, the blessed good news of Jesus Christ. We have seen in your word that we are sinners and we are desperately in the need of a saviour. And Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus as that solution, as that saviour who saves us from our sin, who by his bloodshed atones for our sin so that we can be made new, be called children of God, citizens of heaven and set ablaze with the power of God to be able to share the gospel around the nation. But Father, as I stand here and preach your word, I know that there are many that want to twist that, that take your word and start discussing what they don't like, removing parts of the Bible they don't like, changing the application, downgrading the words that are written, using silly myths and genealogies and man-made falsities to try and convince others to come away from the light and into darkness. And Father, I stand here with trepidation, for I know that you have commanded us to silence them, to shut their mouths and to get that nonsense out of your church. I stand in trepidation as Timothy did when we see the almighty task at hand and when we know that we're going to end up suffering for your name's sake. But Father, praise be to Jesus, for he suffered to the point of death. So what a privilege it is for us to suffer at his name's sake so we can protect the gospel, so that man and woman and child can be saved, so that the kingdom of God would expand. And so Father, I pray as we learned last week for the Spirit, for the Spirit's help, for the Spirit's guidance, for the Spirit's power, and Father, we pray that you would answer our prayer now as we suit up with the armour of God and we go get them. We pray this in your name. Amen.